Welcome to the podcast of the Journal of Ecology. At Intercol in August 2013, the Journal of Ecology sponsored a symposium entitled The Tree of Life in Ecosystems, Evolution of Plant Effects on Carbon and Nutrient Cycling. The keynote talk was given by Professor Lisa Donovan from the University of Georgia, and the title of her presentation was Potential for Evolution of Leaf Traits Related to Carbon and Nutrient Economy. What I'd first like to do is uh, make sure I acknowledge my collaborators on the data I'm going to present today, uh, co-PIs Russell Malmberg and John Burke for the genetics, uh, genomics and evolutionary genetics, some um, excellent graduate students, and I'll highlight their work, and Kelly Bettinger, the research professional. So for an overview of what I'm going to talk about, uh, tie a little bit into the symposium framework that Hans just gave an excellent overview to. I'm going to be dropping into the level of plant traits, specifically a couple of leaf traits, and I'm going to focus on the clade, uh, the genus Helianthus, as a representative system to look at evolutionary liability of traits at this clade level, and then drop down to the interspecific variation that exists and think about how we're going to deal with that as we try and scale back up to processes. So when I looked at the abstracts for this um, symposium and the overall idea, this is how I put it into a framework with the um, ecosystem processes here, uh, decomposition rates feeding into biogeochemical cycling. We're mostly focused around plant traits or interactions of organisms with plant traits. And there's been a trend over the last few years to not only think about the site effects or the environmental effects on it, but also the importance of plant species identity and how that feeds into uh, the tree of life. So a growing understanding of the evolutionary relationships. Tie that to the global databases that are coming available, and we should have greater ability to understand and predict both past, present, and future biogeochemical cycling, I hope. So when I think about how to import evolutionary thinking into a process like this, I actually go back to the breeder's equation. And for those of you, I'm sure you're, many of you are familiar with it, but basically, for uh, just to highlight, S is the selective pressure. Um, if a breeder knows the selective pressure they're putting on a trait and how much heritable variation there is for that trait, the H squared, you can get the response to selection over one generation. And I think we can expand that out, use that as a conceptual framework for thinking about the broad scale that we're interested in. And under selective pressures, we can think about the environment, past climate, and future climate change, and existing variation in plant traits. It's not just the heritable variation here, but genetic variation more broadly, and environmental and ontogenetic variation. The evolutionary outcomes we can focus on are everything from traits with uh, shifts within populations, which is where evolution is taking place. But that obviously leads to differentiation on populations and species, and how that cascades up to biogeochemical cycling. This is where I'm going to be focusing my attention, and I think other folks will uh, address other scales of this whole uh, feedback mechanism here. So plant traits relevant to decomposition, there are many. Um, there's a growing emphasis on what Peter Reich and, and others would call the plant economic spectrum, or Sandra this morning called the global economic spectrum. I think many of these traits are going to affect decomposition. I'm going to focus on a couple of leaf traits uh, within the context of the worldwide leaf economic spectrum, but the ideas that I'm bringing up would actually on uh, trait variation can be scaled to any of these other traits in terms of conceptually figuring out how we're going to deal with variation. So my focus, again, is on leaf nitrogen and LMA, or basically leaf thickness and density. 
Other folks have already filled in this part of the paradigm to a great extent, the importance of litter quality, how it feeds to decomposition. I'm going to be looking at live leaf traits or the response traits that Sandra was talking about and putting that in the context of the worldwide leaf economic spectrum that's uh, gained a lot of attention and thinking about the plant species or the genetic effects broadly defined and the abiotic and site effects. So this is um, probably preaching to the choir here. For most of you, you're probably familiar with the worldwide leaf economic spectrum. But just to um, highlight a few things about it, it's from a GlobeNet database that had um, greater than 2,000 species, many biomes. And I think one important thing to keep in mind is that this is all field data. And there would be one population presented for a given species. And that with that, they came up with um, a description of a multidimensional axis of correlated traits. Basically, when you look in nature, there are certain trait combinations that occur, and they form this spectrum. And then there are many trait combinations that are absent. And we can think about the mechanisms underlying that spectrum, and then what we can do with the information in that spectrum. So I call the high resource acquisitive end of this the quick and juicy. It grows quick, juicy for herbivores. So high photosynthetic rate, uh, skinny leaf or low LMA, and high nitrogen. And I've depicted it here with a maple leaf, so you can keep track of it during the talk. And in the slow and tough end of it for slow-growing species that are well defended uh, by physical properties, represented by the um, conifer leaf needle here. So just a couple of things about the, world, the Willis, the Worldwide Leaf Economic Spectrum. If you take all those species points and plot them by temperature and rainfall, that biome level information does explain some information about what the trait values are. But in fact, what I find fascinating is that within each biome, one of those stacks of points are all the different strategies that you find within a biome. So in a temperate forest, you'd have anything from a longleaf pine at the long end of the, the uh, resource conservative end of the spectrum down to an herbaceous layer uh, plant at the quick end of the spectrum, the resource acquisitive. And both this broad biome scale and the variation within each biome is thought to be reflect adaptive strategies. If we just pull out two of the traits, leaf mass per area and leaf nitrogen, we get this cloud of points representing the species that I call the occupied trait space. And maybe for another day, if you want to get together for a coffee, we can talk about what's in the missing trait space. Why are some combinations not there? And I attribute that uh, conceptually to selection or genetic constraints. But that's an area of debate that we're going to um, need some empirical data to fill in. Today, we're going to focus on the occupied trait space. And if you're interested in what these two points are down here, they're the carnivorous plants. So they have a different nutritional mode that's shifted them off this main axis. So with this graph as a background that you're going to see many times, I'm going to impose a bunch of different data on top of it to talk about trait variation. I'm going to look at evolutionary liability of traits and give you three case studies, and then the extent of interspecific variation for just two case studies. So the study system I'm using, I've been working in for many years now, it's the Helianthus genus. And it's great for ecological and evolutionary functional genomics, which is where I focus, because there's a broad diversity of life forms and habitats. It occurs, these species occur everything from desert dunes to wetlands to rock outcrops. So there's a great variety in ecology. 
Um, there's a fair amount of variation in leaf morphology and leaf lifetime. Leaf lifetime will vary tenfold from one to, to month to up to 12 months or a year. And because they're the Helianthus annuals, the cultivated species is in this genus, we have a lot of genomic resources. We already have a draft genome uh, for this species. And it's experimentally tractable for doing a lot of experimental work and getting good estimates of fitness. So that's basically why I've been working in this. So my three case studies for evolutionary liability, what I wanted to look at was evidence for evolutionary diversification in ways that we can look at possibly the adaptive significance or infer response to selection and infer adaptation. So I'll give you three scales, three time scales. The first is phylogenetically explicit analysis across the clade. Then a QSTFS analysis within one species comparing populations. And then response to domestication for the cultivated species, what we've been able to find there. So the first case study is the phylogenetically explicit analysis. Um, for this, obviously, you need a phylogeny. Right now, what we have for Helianthus is a single gene tree from Tim. Um, and that's the analysis I'll be showing you today. Uh, what work going on in my lab and my collaborator, Russell Momberg, what we will soon have is a more ref refined phylogeny based on 300 genes for 26 species, three populations, and five plants genotyped per population so that we actually have branch lengths down to the population level. And that's the level that we want to look at adaptive differentiation. The traits what I'm going to be talking about are all in common garden conditions. So these are greenhouse studies. Optimal watering, unlimited nutrients, no shading, control for leaf age, control for ontogeny. So trying to minimize every other source of variation we could think of to highlight the underlying genetic differences between species and populations. And for the tree construction, it's uh, the maximum likelihood reconstruction uh, for now. And I can talk about the methods uh, if you're interested um, after the talk. So to show you the species data, what we did, we have three populations for each, but for now we've equally weighted the means because we don't have the individual branch lengths yet. So this diagram, let me orient you, on the left-hand side is leaf nitrogen and with the TIM phylogeny and the traits for the species plotted at the tips. The values, if it's red, it's on the more resource conservative end, so low nitrogen. If it's blue, it's on the high resource end. And to orient you, Phobanthus, the outgroup, is here at the top. And on the right side here is leaf mass per area, with the red being the thicker leaves and <coughs> the blue being the thinner leaves. <coughs> Excuse me. So first, the Helianthus annulus. That's a really widely distributed species all across North America here in the center. And you can see that its traits are about average, so intermediate uh, leaf nitrogen and leaf thickness. And if you look, however, at uh, these other groups, um, this small clade here, these two sister species also have very similar values between closely related species. <clears throat> Up here at the top, though, if you take this small clade, if you look at Helianthus porteri, its closest groups are the Carnosus and the Agrestus. Even though they're very closely related, they've differentiated a fair amount for within a clade, even though they're closely related. And it might be interesting to note that these two, porteri and carnosis, are actually rare endemics. The porteri grows on rock outcrops, and carnosis is a wetland plant. So basically, if you look at the nitrogen and the leaf mass per area, there was much more variation among the species than we expected. 
and data I'm not going to show today for sake of time is we actually have among population variation as well. So for some of these tips, the three populations differed um, much more than we expected, but for now we're just giving weighted means um, until we can get the more resolved phylogeny. And if you take those data, those tips that we have so far, and plot them <clears throat> on the background of the willis, the purple dots are the willis or the leaf, the species that went into describing the initial uh, leaf economic spectrum from the 2004 paper. These species, when grown under common garden conditions, optimal resources, cluster up there at the top. There is a fair amount of species variation, but they're all clustered up there as resource acquisitive where we would expect. But I want you to kind of hang on to that visualization of where they are located, because we're going to come back to later to talk about variation that you can get within just one of those species or one or two of those species, and you need to be able to contrast it to this. So from that first case study, there's a lot of variation among the species, more than we expected. And that's true for the two leaf traits. It's also true for root traits. This is um, the leaf trait is data um, analyses are from Chase Mason, a graduate student, and the root traits are being analyzed by graduate student Alan Boucher. For leaf, uh, for root n and specific root length, we're also finding that degree of variation. And what we're going to do over the next year is when we fill out the greater phylogeny and we add 12 more species, we're going to do phylog phylogenetically independent contrast to test for correlated trait evolution and see if we can get an inference of adaptive um, evolution that way. And the, t the analyses to date at the species level are not significant, but there's a trend that we think when we actually have reasonable power that that's going to uh, be revealed. And we also going to look at, at the population level and species level correlations between traits and the environment. So source site climate and fertility and looking for inferences of ad adaptive differentiation that way. <clears throat> and for anyone who's interested, we're actually doing about 50 traits overall in terms of leaf stem and root traits, um, and we're willing to uh, collaborate to add on more analysis if anyone is interested once we have the phylogeny. So moving on to case studies two. <clears throat> This is a QSD FST um, analysis, and I'm guessing that's a little bit less familiar to folks in this crowd. It's a quantitative genetic approach to look at trait variation and be able to infer adaptive differentiation of those traits. What you need is four species to collect uh, seeds or propagules from multiple populations. You bring them into the greenhouse, you grow them under common garden conditions, you measure your traits, you get the genotypes, and then you parse the variation to among and within population sources, and you get a ratio. And for those of you uh, into population genetics, the FST is the partitioning of neutral genetic variation. So that should account for just rift, drift, and random processes. Then you do that same sort of partitioning for the phenotypic traits. And if you get a value for each trait of a QST greater than an FST, then this is support or it's consistent with adaptive differentiation of that trait. And a quantitative geneticist will tell you, beware of the assumptions. There's a lot of assumptions to go into this analysis. But it's a powerful approach for being able to work with um, populations and get a start on inferring adaptive differentiation. We did this with Helianthus anomalous. It's a desert dune species, um, grows in the desert southwest in Utah and Arizona. And it's a hybrid species. So we know its age between about 400 and 1,000, uh, 400 
thousand and a million years of age. So this is relatively recent diversification um, evolutionarily. So what we found fascinating was that yes, they clustered at the high resource end of the gradient as we expected, and they were really tightly grouped. But when we looked at the trait values uh, for leaf N, QST was greater than FST, um, inferring adaptive differentiation for these populations. And it was true for a, uh, photosynthesis on a mass basis and days to first flower as well. And if you look at the um, different populations and do a correlation, there's a still a significant negative correlation between these two traits. And the populations at the most resource acquisitive end are actually in the hottest and driest habitats. So it's the most stressful habitat, but our explanation or interpretation is that for these annual species, you're actually selecting for an escape strategy that you get started in the spring when the uh, dunes are the wettest habit part of the habitat. And then through the year, there's selection to complete the life cycle, grow fast, complete the life cycle uh, before the drought really kicks in. So this is another example of adaptive differentiation at a smaller evolutionary scale. And then here's a response to domestication. So this is Helianthus annulus. It's been under intensive selection for the last, uh, since the 1800s. And the material we're working with is an association mapping population that's going to allow us to get at the genetic basis, the genetic architecture of these traits. So here we have data for 205 lines, and this is the um, data from Caitlin Isabashi, another graduate student. And you'll notice that um, they're sort of shifted compared re relative to the complete Willis spectrum and that for a given N, they have a thinner leaf, but that there's still a negative correlation here. So this is evolutionary diversification in response to selection on other traits that's dragging these traits along with it. And if you want to think about the implications of that for um, decomposition, um, I encourage you to read these papers related to our symposium hosts. So at this level, the evolutionary liability of traits um, there's growing evidence for correlated trait evolution and adaptive differentiation at these small evolutionary scales that we should take into account if we're trying to scale up for ecosystem processes, okay? So that's the good news. The scarier news is what happens with interspecific variation, and I'll just give you two quick case studies here. This is Helianthus uh, anomalous, is the first case study that you've seen before. This is data you've already seen where they were clustered, the populations up here. Now I want to add other greenhouse studies. So the green stays the same, the yellow and the orange here are different common garden studies. There was much more variation between studies than we expect that we can't account for by any methodological details that we know about the experiments. And if you then layer on trait data <clears throat> from natural populations and field common garden studies, they cluster down here. So if you were looking at this grouping, which data would you put into a phylogenetic analysis or a decomposition modeling effort? It raises that question. And I'll do the same for Helianthus annulus, and this is probably the most startling slide, at least when I first saw this data. This is from Chase Mason. These are three populations of Helianthus annulus grown in a growth chamber, and the leaves were sampled at different ontogenetic stages, so we controlled for leaf age, for environment, but say, if you take the green dots for one population, 
this is what it was, was early juvenile, late juvenile, pre-budding, and fruiting. The leaf trait shifted that much simply based on the entogeny, the reproductive stage. You can layer that with more common garden data here in the green, and then you can layer on field data in the pink triangles, and basically with one species we've got trait data covering a large portion of the willis, which is kind of scary. I want to know what to do with this variation. So going back to this diagram, I think I've been able to fill in some ideas about types of variation and differentiation among populations and species. And what I would like to get out of this symposium is an idea of what to do with this level of information. So I think we, I would recommend more characterizations of phenotypic space for uh, dominant species, for important species, continuing to take advantage of the, the databases and the analyses that have been done and that we may need to actually use different data sets for mapping traits onto phylogenies. I would want to use common garden data generally for anything that is labile as these traits. I'm not sure what you would do with field data in a phylogenetic context. That, that gets a little scary. But for decomposition, you probably want the field data and all the variation that's associated with that. So with that, I will take questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Journal of Ecology podcast.